You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallones and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, and deep-sea canyons and maritime artifacts. Today, our focus is right outside the KWMR doors and about one mile to the west. Located 45 miles northwest of San Francisco, Tamales Bay is a 12-and-a-half-mile-long coastal estuary that lies along the Rift Valley of the San Andreas Fault between the Point Reyes Peninsula and the California mainland. In 2002, it was recognized as a wetland of international importance under the Ramsar Convention and is included in the Golden Gate Biosphere, part of the UNESCO World Network of Biosphere Reserves. The bay is stewarded by agencies such as the National Park Service, NOAA, Greater Farallones National Marine Sanctuary, state and county parks, the Marin Resource Conservation District, the Tamales Bay Watershed Council, and stakeholders like my guest today, Terry Sawyer of Hog Island Oyster Company, who makes a living and supports the local economy and culture directly depending on the health of the bay. Tamales Bay has seagrass beds, intertidal sand and mud flats, salt and freshwater marshes. Usually about 20,000 wintering shorebirds, seabirds, and waterbirds visit and feed in the bay. Fish species including salmon, eel, sturgeon, halibut, endangered coho salmon, and the commercially important Pacific herring rely on its creeks and extensive eelgrass beds to spawn. The bay also supports a resident harbor seal breeding population. And in summary, within this small stretch of water and in such close proximity to a major urban urban populace, this bay is stunning for humans and wildlife alike. To maintain and improve the bay, especially with a more cultural invention of the bay, the Tamales Bay Watershed Council and the Marin Resource Conservation District combined have been eyeing and working on projects directly supporting the health of the bay. Today, I'd like to welcome... Terry Sawyer to Ocean Currents, co-owner of the Certified B Corporation Hog Island Oyster Company and foundation board member to the Tamales Bay Watershed Council and elected director to the Marin Resource Conservation District and countless other duties of service. So Terry, I'm thrilled to welcome you to Ocean Currents. Welcome. Good morning. So Tamales Bay, it's such a treasure. When I'm reading all these beautiful things about it and I think about my relationship with the bay, um, everybody from afar or local has a story of how they found themselves here in this watershed. Can you share your story of how you made it to Tamales Bay? Well, funny thing is I had a, um, a, a pretty amazing job working at the Monterey Bay Aquarium as an aquarist. And um, at the same time living in Santa Cruz and getting to know some adventurous marine biologists who were getting involved in starting an oyster farm in Tamales Bay. 
And after helping them out, uh, getting things started over a couple of years, I was lured by my friends to join them and leave a, a prestigious job uh, with lots of job security and join the, the ranks of uh, adventurous marine biologists that are taking the risks of farming in the water and farming in general. So that brought me here, and that brought me here in 1988. I officially moved here. Wonderful. Now, Hog Island Oyster Company is a certified B Corporation. This is relatively new. Can you talk a little bit about what is a certified B Corporation? Sure. It's, it's, a, it's a process. That's probably the, the best way to describe it. We, um, we underwent a, um, uh, an evaluation. We were looking for third-party certification to understand our impacts and understand ways that we could improve on our impacts. And this is impacts that go from not only on the water, in the water, on the land, on the land, uh, our, how we deal with our, our employees, et cetera. So uh, we settled on this particular uh, form of certification because it's really a way to not only take the test, uh, and it's a very long, fairly onerous test to, to undergo, and you have to do this on a regular basis, um, but also to actually go through and, and be certified uh, as a, a B Corp, a benefit corporation, um, you have to go through a legal process. So we actually were a California corporation prior to this, and in California it's, it's uh, possible to do a benefit corporation. And we took the test. We, are, we went through our uh, shareholder vote, and we are now officially a benefit corporation, certified B Corp. And we, we use this as a way of not only taking this test, trying to improve on our impacts, but it's like dropping that pebble in the water and seeing the ripples go out. Everybody that we deal with, everybody that we touch, everybody that is coming in contact with us, we examine our relationships with them. And what we try to do is do business with those same type of people. And the, the probably the, a key part that really was a, a good decision on this for me and my partner, John Finger, was to... Um, uh, codify these principles and write it into our bylaws. So we can go riding off into the sunset someday and we'll have a company that's going to go on with the same standards that we've started. And that's a 100-year company. We're not here just to get in and get out. We're here for the next generations. It's a great way to self do a little self-evaluation of how you're operating and how you want to interact with the community. It's great. And I think a lot of people look to companies that are like think are thinking about the other people and thinking about the community. So congratulations, and it's a wonderful thing to have here in Point Reyes. Thank you. Turning to the bay a bit, historically, the Miwok were here 2,000 to 4,000 years ago and fit into the landscape. And over time, the human footprint has increased on the bay's health. How would you characterize the health of Tamales Bay today? Well, you mentioned earlier on in your introduction that we are within an hour, hour and a half of a major metropolitan area, and it's always remarkable to me to think that we're actually able to produce food out of that. Now, at the same time, we have periods of time that we are closed during the rainy seasons uh, uh, period where we can be closed uh, due to water quality issues. And the water quality issues are directly related to land use practices 
and those in some cases can close us depending on the amount of rain that we get uh, for 90 days or more a year and so um, what's the condition of the bay I would say that when it's open it's pretty amazing when it's closed water quality standards do not meet in some cases recreational contact standards so that's a concern not only for myself growing food in the water but it should be a concern for everybody that uses that enjoys this bay tell us a little bit about the water quality i know this has been a function of the watershed tomales bay watershed council but why don't we draw back a little bit and talk a little bit about the history of the Tomales Bay Watershed Council and when did that form and come to be and who are those board members that are directly well, involved? Okay, so that's it's, it goes back, um, well, uh, in the 90s, basically, where we were seeing uh, conditions. It was basically it was a, a group of collaborators, and that's a word that I'm going to use a number of times on our talk today. But it's uh, stakeholders that involve ranchers, farmers, uh, uh, the, the community, uh, people that are involved in any produce, production of food in the water, all stakeholders that would be considered in this. And, and I, we can bring in recreational uh, users as well, boaters, fishermen. And the, it was brought, the, the board was basically started to uh, understand the, uh, what is going on in this bay. Because we're terrestrial, we're looking at something that if any, anything below the surface is not something we're comfortable with or familiar with necessarily. And it's out of sight, out of mind. And if you look at this bay, 12 and a half miles long, it's got about a 200 square mile watershed. Pretty significant watershed for such a small body of water. So um, there's a lot of impacts. They may be pretty far out and away, but you always have to, when we're looking at this ridge line and this, this, this inc incredible vista that we have living here, we have to turn around and look at the water or vice versa, look back, because it, it all touches the water. So there's a lot of potential as far as, uh, you know, impacts that are out there. And so the Watershed Council really is, their goal really is, is to understand what's going on in the watershed and to enhance an understanding of that. And it's done by a variety of different ways. And I've, I've taken, um, you know, the, the efforts that I've been able to put into it and, and being able to, one, understand what's going on. You have to monitor. You have to test the water. And you're testing, for in, in this case, uh, for coliform, fecal coliform, but we've done nitrates, nitrates, nitrates and ni nitrites in the past as well. And uh, it's, it's, we've got sample stations that are located, and they're, they're uh, in the bay and in streams. And so the sampling is an important part. The monitoring is an important part. And I believe in keeping that continuity because what we're talking about is something over time to really understand these trends. The trend of the bay really is is it's stable. It's not continuing to go down, but there are areas that are in some cases that uh, uh, that have not really improved on, on some of our what I know are leases, and um, that's where we're trying to focus our energy right now. And uh, I'm imagining a lot of that is looking both upstream and downstream. Um, that's the thing with an estuary is they both influence 
this body of water in between. Mm. So you're mentioning about the 225 miles. I'm thinking every nook and cranny of every creek is included in that distance. And every single thing that happens up there influences that water. So what are some of the um, projects or focuses you've had upstream as a council to work on helping improve water quality? Well, I can talk about the council, and I can talk about the Marin RCD. The yeah, Resource they seem to be very entwined with what they do in terms of stewarding yes. water. One is more of, of handling uh, public monies and, and uh, sources of monies, and one is it's really dependent on donations and um, NGO uh, participation. But it's it's really they're both extremely important and, and just as as examples stream restoration is an important part of that and that reflects not only on the water quality but also on the salmonids that are we're trying to restore some of the salmon populations in their spawning grounds um, there's been with the the land use practices it has not necessarily lent itself to uh, improving uh, what's going on in the water for instance like sedimentation so these projects will involve things like sediment control, keeping uh, uh, as, as uh, intensive um, culture in ranching and farming out of the, the streams and out of those direct steep slopes that feed right into the streams, which leads to not only fecal coliform loading but also sediments, to uh, getting funding for fencing, getting funding for getting the water away from the stream, from the stream into troughs that are away, to uh, carbon project, to the Marin Carbon Project. Uh, which has been a very amazing success story. We can talk about that yeah, later in more detail. But I would say that as far as the successes, like what's going on in Chicken Ranch Beach, trying to understand what's going on there with the contaminated stream that, that where our children have all played, you know, we have to look at those kinds of things and try to find ways to obtain the money, obtain the resources, the engineering that's involved, the permit process. All of those are very important components to making something, understanding what's going on, but making it an effective, uh, let's say, repair, remediation, control that's going to actually enhance that water quality. So after there's some restoration, such as creek restoration or bank stabilization or rerouting of water, do they do monitoring downstream to see if it's improved? No, that's a requirement, yes. And, and part of that is is making sure that that monitoring is, is done correctly. It has to be the, the apples to apples. You have to know what's really going on within a certain proximity, a certain zone from an, in, an area that may be considered a, a point source or a non-point source. And that's the other thing is understanding all of these these potential impacts are what the Watershed Council and the Resource Conservation District have been very much um, uh, uh, effective and still need to be having communication and, and um, education. And collaboration, as you were saying. Collaboration. <laughs> there it is. There's the word. Yeah. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents here on KWMR. I'm Jennifer Stock, and I have Terry Sawyer of Hog Island Oyster Company here. And we're talking upstream right now of what's what are some influences on the bay's health of Tomales Bay. And um, one of the things that came to mind, thinking about watershed, and I've seen some wonderful examples of this bank stabilization and fencing to help stabilize where water is running, Last year, we had a crazy year of incredible amounts of water, and these atmospheric rivers seem to be on the rise with the precipitation trends we're going to get in the future, especially in the winter. 
And I'm sure this is a new approach towards the land management as well because it's such an influx of volume on mm-hmm. the land. Were there big changes last year in the land that really prov- proved that we'll have to keep working more towards stabilizing land? Well, that's really a great question. I, I, I would say that, one, we've got practices and water systems that have been established on known patterns. And what you just mentioned is we have changes that are going on. Climate change is real. We are seeing it, and part of that monitoring is what we're involved with, not only as a business, but these organizations that we work with. And, yeah, what we're seeing is, like when, especially like if there's a fire event, you know, you'll have increased erosion. Or if you've got uh, the stream banks where stream cuts are, are where the stream is basically you have these old oxbows that are going on that we have built infrastructure around that we can't, we can't move or it's, it just is, is an engineering uh, challenge. It's a permit challenge. So, yeah, we've had a lot of projects that have gone on where we're trying to get out there and uh, take care of roads, road cuts, um, culverts, culverts that are getting clogged, make sure they stay clear, uh, sediment loading, uh, a reduction is the goal here. Uh, the, the, as far as like where some of these multiple channels that are occurring, understanding what salmon need as far as pools to reside in so that they get uh, shelter protection from predators, uh, the thermal as temperatures are rising so they're not overheated. There's yes, there's a lot of considerations, and like this past winter, yeah, but there were there were projects actually that that showed that the work w- that was done were effective, and there were projects that showed well, no, <laughs> there's really not a lot you can do in some situations. So, what do you do then? So again, it's all it's it takes engineering, it takes an understanding, it takes permitting, it takes money. Oh, did we mention political will? Anyway, so it takes a <laughs> lot. So. Yeah, luckily, locally in Marin, we seem to have a lot of support for the land management and the Mm -hmm. support of the water and the Bay Health. Um, Back to the water quality monitoring with the Tomales Bay Watershed Council. Is that done year-round, and is it specific places, and is there a way for people like myself to keep up on the health of specific locations in the Bay based on the testing? So, um, great questions. Um, The um, Somebody did their homework. The, there's, I there's, love this bay. I use it a lot. I'm <laughs> thrilled so, to have you here. So we, we have, yeah, there's water quality stations that are established in, in some cases by uh, California Department of Public Health, the Environmental Management Branch, uh, and the shellfish growers each have their own monitoring stations. Uh, some of them coincide with, like, what the Watershed Council uh, stations are. And then it extends back into the different estuaries, excuse me, further into the estuary, and then up into the streams. Um, mo- those are year-round. And then there are, during the wintertime, they try to uh, capitalize on those episodic events that occur, hopefully capturing when an actual storm has occurred and you get the increased flow and the increased loading, mm-hmm. whether it's the fecal coliform or sediments or whatever. There's, there's, there's sampling that goes on there, and they're done at the same location. And there's certain... Um, funding that has to happen with the labs that support that. And then on the shellfish side, we actually pay for our own monitoring with our, we have the requirements that we have to meet. And then we take them to a certified saltwater approved saltwater lab. Uh, and that's got to be approved through a FDA process. Lots of monitoring, lots of testing, and yes. constant maintenance of that. 
Um, is there a way, though? Is there a website where people can check in on sure. on, yeah. um, on, the, on, on those sample results and all that? On the uh, And hopefully we have the, the people involved, uh, we have the money to update the, the websites and all that, but the Watershed Council has on its website uh, links to those sample results. Oh, that's great. Um, one of the challenges is, is that you have multiple entities doing sampling and making sure that they're talking. Mm. is always a challenge and that's been one of my pushes is to make sure that with these trends understanding these trends you got to take all of it into account some of the testing you've been doing is has been focused also on chemistry and the water hog island oyster company has been working a lot on some of the influences that have been coming from the ocean mm -hmm. into the bay can you talk a little bit about some of the climate work that Hog Island Oyster Company has been doing in partnership with Bodega Marine Lab. How much time do we have? Well, we have about nine <laughs> minutes till we take a, a short, short break. Okay. So. This, the, uh, I'm, I'm poking fun at this because there's an awful lot going on. So um, as we all know, there are changes that are going on out there, especially anybody along the coast. Um, there's, with the upwelling that's been going on, we're seeing signals of of uh, changes in the chemistry, not only in the pH, but also in oxygen levels. And um, a word of caution, anything that we're talking about here is we have a, as a, uh, people have a tendency to want to put everything in a nice, tidy little box. And what I've been learning over time, especially with the collaboration with Dr. Tessa Hill and the Bodega Bay Marine Lab Laboratories uh, work on the ocean acidification monitoring and research is it's a complicated system carbon chemistry is is it's moving it's a dynamic process so what we're seeing is yes trends where we're seeing ph changes where the waters are becoming more acidic and that's in the ocean and the upwelling that's going on once it comes into the estuary it becomes even more complicated because then you have it uh, at times when there's uh, rainfall events where the rain itself may be of a different temperature, I mean, excuse me, not only temperature, but the, the pH. And so we have uh, the nutrient loading that goes on. You have all these, these chemical processes that are going on that, just like a science experiment, you move one variable, it changes the entire result. So um, the collaboration we're doing right now is... Uh, part of a system on the eastern margin of the Pacific Ocean, um, and that's the entire uh, uh, North American coast, basically all the way up to Alaska, and it includes Hawaii. And we're part of a network. We're one of 10 instruments that are on the west coast that are the same. Again, you have to monitor the same parameters, apples to apples, and uh, it's, it's available online. There's an IPACOA site. Um, and we can talk about that later as far as what that, uh, you know, anybody can go and look at it. Mm -hmm. And um, we're soon to be 2 of 11 because with the hatchery that I've been building in Humboldt Bay, uh, we're, we're getting a second instrument, the same kind, and we're learning what's going on. And part of what we're learning, too, is the collaboration has to involve private sector to support uh, the infrastructure the the knowledge from academia, the public funding to help 
make this happen because it's not cheap. And then you have to work out the bugs, including get, having the interaction between oyster farmers and expensive equipment. So we're <laughs> not easy on equipment. And you're operating in a marine environment. The, none of that is, is simple. Yeah. Are each of these instruments um, co-located in estuarine um, areas or maybe near aquaculture? Are each of them near aquaculture? Some are. Some are, yes. Uh, And in some cases, they're linked to uh, wharf-mounted, buoy-mounted gliders. They actually use water uh, gliders in the water. And all of those are interacting and, and linked so to date, what, how has this data helped inform you as an oyster farmer in terms of management day-to-day or storm-to-storm or season-to-season? Right, right. Well, part of it is, is we're, we're sitting here talking right now because we love the water. We love the ocean. Um, we uh, just uh, we're concerned. Um, it's helping, as, as a business, it's helping me understand what's going on with the organisms that I am farming. They actually are building a shell. They need a certain parameter, set of parameters to build that shell. And if it fluctuates too much, it becomes more difficult for them to build the shell, and especially at the larval and the the young stages. That's where we're seeing the impacts now. So let's say at a hatchery, I can make a decision to slow down the flow of the water coming in during uh, that event, watching when the event is happening. I can buffer the water. I can um, I can use basically methods to manage what waters are coming in at the time, so that I can manage that impact during the time that that upwelling event maybe uh, that we're talking about is going on. So that helps me there. That's incredible. Thinking about the field of aquaculture, and it's such an incredible place right now, especially in the United States, to put. Uh, thoughts in terms of careers and science, the chemistry involved and the engineering of managing water and, you know, like you said, the buffering. I'm just thinking of careers of, you know, you've been figuring this out day to day by managing it, but I'm thinking about the next up and coming potential farmers and hopefully oh, yeah. they're practicing their chemistry. Well, and the, <laughs> the farming is is an understanding of not only the the shellfish that we're talking about, well, what species is, we're watching the changes in these trends uh, where the slope of change is actually very steep and something that we as a planet have not experienced before. And doing it in a way that's actually a result of man-made practices that are producing all the uh, greenhouse gases and the carbon loading that's going on in the atmosphere. And then that becomes uh, absorbed by the, the waters and the oceans. So we have organisms that we're used to growing. Well, now I have to be looking at other organisms that I can grow. Then I have to go through the whole marketing aspect of get people to like what that is. And then also, uh, as an example, macroalgaes, using seaweed for food, using seaweed for fertilizer. We can be looking at that. At the same time, that is an organism that actually helps to buffer that water. Seaweed is amazing. I had a... a seaweed farmer, I guess not a farmer, She was. she's a harvester, Heidi Herman, come in mm-hmm. and talk about all the amazing health aspects of ingesting seaweed as well as on land management and practice. She definitely got me thinking about seaweed in my garden. And Bren Smith we've had on from mm-hmm. GreenWave talking about this new 3D farming to think about the, the health properties and, and the new marketing of seaweed for food. With the larval stages, I know you know I know the early research has shown early stages of calcifying organisms are struggling with acidic conditions and excessive carbon dioxide in the water. 
Is there a threshold once they pass that they seem to be stable? And I'm wondering if has this changed how you, what age larvae and seed you put out in terms of into the watershed to start growing to an adult? Like, did they go out a little bit older than they used to go? Well, that's that's the theory that you've you've really protected the the conditions where they're having to work hard to build a shell. Especially, a lot of these marine organisms are living off of an energy budget based on the yolk of the egg that they've developed from. Mm-hmm. And in that time, they're not only developing shell, they're developing their organs that are actually helping them to be viable as adults. And if you can get them past that stage, yes. Uh, so, yeah, you can talk about bringing them out into the what we call the real world uh, <laughs> and real-world conditions and, and trying to enhance those conditions or the, the animal's uh, size and, and level of development before it's put out there. At the same time, we should be looking at other organisms that may not be as vulnerable or organisms that are actually adapted to the types of swings in pH that have gone on along especially the eastern margin of the Pacific. Uh, there's, there's a lot of organisms. We have, we've seen it historically, these swings, right? you know, with upwelling. Well, these are organisms that have survived, that have adapted that. So maybe there's clues that we can use that we can actually go in and do breeding programs and develop species that will have that ability that they didn't have before. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to ocean currents. For those tuning in, this is Jennifer Stock talking with Terry Sawyer of Hog Island Oyster Company. We're talking about Tomales Bay. We're talking about aquaculture of, of uh, raising oysters in a, a changing ocean and, and bay environment. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to KWMR. going to come back here to talk with Terry a little bit more about what's happening with aquaculture on the bay. And Terry, you are in such an interesting position and you have this on the ground knowledge of what's going on and and working with the the animals and the staff and keeping these operations going and and figuring them out, but you're also working with all the stakeholders and landowners and who's in this watershed that influence the water, but then you even go beyond and you're working a lot more with educating others, the decision makers in our county, our state, and our country to educate them, basically, of what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about, I almost am like, there's like two Terry's. There's Terry Tamales and then Terry out and about and keeping up with you is pretty tough. So that is pr- pretty impressive. Talk a little bit about the work you've done to educate the decision makers about what's happening on the ocean and the bay and what's happening with aquaculture. Well, it is uh, like trying to find the energy and the time for this, uh, but we find it as a business absolutely essential to get involved, to lead the way, to be involved with not only local organizations like we're talking about, which involve the county, um, but going into Sacramento, uh, walking the hill in Sacramento, as we say, and and um, meeting with representatives, our representatives, um, and talking about the issues, not only the issues of uh, the, the climate change, but also talking about if I want to even think about trying to get anybody else involved, much less maintain uh, our involvement in trying to farm in the water, it's incredibly difficult. 
what used to be where we could fill out all our permits and we can have it done for $500. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars now and years in some cases to go through the permit process. And that doesn't allow any sort of growth in an industry that is, one, producing a protein or proteins in food in the water, but also the challenges of trying to uh, replace what we're having to import into this country at the same time understanding our impacts and acknowledging that there are impacts and trying to improve on those. So we go and we talk with Sacramento. We talk about what we need to support on the laboratory side, what we need to su we need support on the permitting side, uh, the, uh, the uh, California Coastal Commission, state lands, regional boards. All of those are all involved in managing what's going on along the coast. At the same time, we had to go to Washington, D.C., at the same time talking to the state representatives, that our representatives there, and other representatives from around the United States, and talk about what these challenges are, where we need the cost, where we need the help, what agencies to support on the national, on the federal level. And as constituents, we represent an industry that's, that I have over 220 employees, Okay, that's a lot of people that I'm responsible for that, that believe in the same things that I do that are very much, that's, those are just the people. Then you have their families, the communities that they're involved in. So it, these, are, these are roles that we get to play as a small company that we can try to get this message out. We take this message internationally as well. And I, for instance, uh, two years ago, went with one other grower from the West Coast and two growers from the East Coast. We went to the U.K. Uh, we had a carbon footprint to go do this and talk about what we're seeing on the West Coast, what we're seeing on the East Coast, what they are seeing. And this is not something that's unique just to here. It's, it's a worldwide challenge. And trying, in, in especially in this political environment that we're in right now, and, and just doing what we know, we have, uh, we have uh, data that we can actually show where there is change going on that we need to get people interested, we need to get people concerned, and get them involved because there's many people like me out there doing the same thing, and we need to get it out there for more people. You just recently had an um, Assemblyman member to mm -hmm. visit Hog Island. Yeah, what was that like? Assemblyman and Mark Stone uh, came out, and he brought a couple of staffers, and we brought them out on the bay, uh, got them in boots and wet gear and <laughs> life jackets and walked around out there on one of our leases, and they were stunned. It's a different world out there. It's uh, just where you have the, the, the herons and the plovers and the, 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 all the marine organisms. We had seals and river otters, and then we were talking about, oh, well, there's osprey flying over us. And, oh, there's, there's somewhere around here is an eagle. I looked over probably 20 <laughs> yards away, sitting on the mud flat, looking at us. was a bald eagle. That's amazing. And they were just absolutely stunned. And to me, putting people in touch with the water, having them get wet, get the smell, get the, the feel, the wind on their face, and to get that experience, that environment, 
they take that message back and they talk to different people and they will be making decisions in whatever committees that they're involved with or uh, other um, representatives that they're involved with. And yes, th that's the kind of thing that needs to happen here on a much more, uh, like on an increased level. I understand uh, last year, Jared Huffman had a, a symposium or a gathering at Bodega Marine Lab talking about ocean acidification. What was that about and what are some outcomes from that? Well, the the uh, Bodega Labs is, has a role here with, and, and Jared Huffman uh, did a great job of being able to sponsor this, uh, come in and participate and show that, one, that California as, as a state, as a state government is actually interested in what's going on. And what was it like? It was people were, were hearing things of grave concern about these changes that are going on. And to take that and, and give it the, the messaging with not only the academic component that was going on, but also the audience participation, the questions that were coming through, that trying to understand some of these changes just needs to happen. This is, goes back to this theme. It's education. It's about getting a message back. And Jared Huffman was great because he can go and go to Sacramento. He can go to Washington, D.C. And those are all key players in getting this message out there for us that as a as an industry that if we're out there and I don't want to use that canary in the coal mine but because we're out there every day we can assume certain things uh, we get used to it but then when you bring in these conversations and have these conversations with people that are like me that are out there and have them interact with people that are in the general public or people that are their representatives that's that's absolutely essential that that happens because we're going to need interest, energy, voices, money, and science to come up with solutions on this because I have children. I, they're going to be having children someday. We're going to be talking about next generations that all of us have in front of us that w this is our responsibility to take this responsibility. So with this, the Bodega Labs, one of the key things that's happening with Bodega Labs for me is that they are absolutely essential as a local laboratory, just like Robert Tiburon. Both are in our area that are actually with their their uh, academic prowess. They're out there uh, functioning in a way that's going to connect the community. You know what it's like. You just get in your pat. You get in your car, go to work, and you come home. You go out. You might go shopping or whatever. But connecting them back to the water is really what we're talking about. And keeping that alive is what what I see as having our representatives out there because we have a message along the coast that we have to have constituents that are in the interior understand what's going on. Yeah, and working with Bodega, too, with the scientists, it's applied science. It's science that's applied directly to people's lives and the economy. So I think that's really a wonderful partnership. We just we need to wrap it up, and I just want to ask, do you have a sense of hope for the, the future, all the work that you've put in to date, all these incredible partnerships that have helped keep things alive and, and moving forward to adapt, and how do you see the next 10, 15 years? Well, it has to happen fast. It has to happen steady. I have hope. Um, that's why I'm here today. Uh, that's why I go to work and, and work on these things. These are very challenging obstacles that we've talked about today. And I have uh, children. I have a sense of responsibility. I've mentioned this. But at the same time, um, 
it, it's going to take a lot of people out there in your listening community that to get involved and ask questions, look at impacts, take care of the single-use pr- uh, plastics issues, take care of how much you're driving, carpooling, other forms of transportation, et cetera. So there's, I have hope. Um, I have to. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a hopeful person. At the same time, I'm, you know, sure, we can curl up in a fetal position and just go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? But look at what we're living in. This is paradise, and we need to take care of it. Thank you, Terry. I want to add, we are so lucky, too, in Marin. We have a bunch of innovators and people willing to experiment, and it's really easy to dive in and participate as a citizen to participate in these solutions. And part of those solutions are communicating. And even if you're not a teacher or a scientist, you can communicate about these concerns with your friends. I always tell that to people. That's one of the biggest ways we can participate in these solutions is to keep talking about it. We have to all keep talking about it. And there's, mm-hmm. we're so lucky here. There's so many great solutions happening in the water and up the stream, up the watershed in Marin. So thank you so much for all your participation in that and for being here today on Ocean Currents. It's my pleasure. I want to add, too, folks, it's amazing to think about what goes into an oyster. I was reflecting on that today, thinking about all the work that goes into one of those delicious oysters. And Hog Island Oyster Company, definitely part of its B Corporation, is giving back. And through the sales of hog wine, 10% of their funding goes towards things to help the community. In three years, they've been putting funds towards the water quality monitoring with the Watership Council. So Mm -hmm. I love that. There are companies that are really giving back to helping steward and take care of things. So thank you so much. And folks, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our Positively Ocean and a couple announcements. You're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. We're back every month here on Ocean Currents. I bring a short segment called Positively Ocean to you. I have a volunteer, Liz Fox, that curates this and produces this story. And we're going to attempt to play an episode that we tried last month that had some technical difficulties talking about sea turtles. And so we're going to go away from the West Coast, go to the East Coast, and talk about some incredible people that are helping sea turtles. So stay here and listen to Positively Ocean. This is Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. I'm Liz Fox. When government officials greet a private airplane packed with banana boxes on a Texas tarmac, you might imagine a dramatic showdown. But when Ben Higgins did that in 2014, it was a different story. Higgins is the Sea Turtle Program Manager at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration's Galveston Laboratory. In 2014, he received a shipment of cold-stunned sea turtles from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And at the local airport here in Galveston, we drive out and load them in our van and bring them over here and process them. We weigh them, measure them. Our veterinarian takes a look at them, and they usually take an x-ray and develop a course of treatment and they stay here until they're ready to be released. Cold stunning happens when water temperatures dip below 50 degrees Fahrenheit and turtles metabolism halts leaving them floating and at the mercy of currents and winds. Cold stunned sea turtles are alive but they're incapable of moving or eating on their own. 
As rescuers innovate to improve turtle survival rate, sea turtles may fly more frequently. That's because more turtles are getting stranded on the shores of Cape Cod than ever before. This winter, about 200 volunteers have retrieved more than 400 turtles from Cape Cod's frosty sea foam. For the past 10 years, volunteers have recovered an average of 300 cold-stunned sea turtles per year, up from dozens in previous years. Scientists aren't sure if the increase is the result of successful efforts to protect nesting sites on sandy beaches in the southeast and Mexico, or if the turtles are now attracted to the nutrient-rich Gulf of Maine, which is warming faster than almost any other body of water on Earth. It may be a combination of the two factors, said Bob Prescott, the director of the Massachusetts Audubon's Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary. He's seen a dramatic increase in the number of sea turtles washing up over his career. Yeah, I found my first sea turtle in uh, 1974 in the fall. It was you know, kind of a big shock in a way because I had never really thought about sea turtles being here in Massachusetts. The 2014 stranding stands out in everyone's mind. A whopping 1,241 sea turtles were trapped in the bay and cold stunned. That stranding event tested the entire East Coast Sea Turtle Recovery Network, including aquaria and wildlife refuges from Maine to Mississippi and Texas. Again, Prescott. But one of the critical links with turtles is that we have so many up here and we don't have the capacity in the tanks. With the facilities available but too far away, U.S. Coast Guard and Air National Guard flew hundreds of sea turtles to host sites before the turtles could recover enough to return to sea. But the enormous task of safely transporting hundreds of turtles remained as their recovery progressed at different rates. That's when sea turtles began to fly in private jets. And they have Leslie Weinstein to thank for their bird's eye view of the Atlantic. Weinstein is a lifelong turtle advocate who protected turtle eggs when he was a boy in his native Florida. During his career as a general aviation businessman, he continued to participate in sea turtle conservation. So he was in contact with conservationists in Massachusetts and Georgia when the mass stranding happened. And his contacts in the aviation world were just what everyone needed. It was Thanksgiving, and he remembers it well. While you were eating turkey, I was on the phone shipping turtles. Weinstein mobilized a then budding network of volunteer pilots who donated their time, skills, and equipment. Higgins, who received about 50 Kemp's Ridley sea turtles, had plenty of room in his tanks in Galveston, Texas, and he's no stranger to sea turtle rescues. This year, he led the rescue effort for a record 3,663 cold-stunned green sea turtles from Texas's mudflats after January's freezing cold snap. We have a really good network of people along the Texas coast and getting people out there looking for turtles. Cold snaps in the Gulf of Mexico that stun green sea turtles are different from the gradually cooling fall season that slowed down sea turtles trapped in the Cape Cod Bay. Those turtles typically spend months with little access to food and face longer recovery. Green sea turtles in a cold snap usually need moderate warming, a checkup, a tag, and then they can return to nearby water when the weather conditions improve. So even during the biggest cold stunning event in Texas's history, the tanks at Higgins's NOAA lab and nearby aquaria did not reach full capacity. That means turtles stranded thousands of miles away can always catch a flight to a warm tank and professional care. And that's an example of folks doing right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean.
For Ocean Currents and KWMR Radio, this is Liz Fox reporting in Berkeley, California. Thank you, Liz Fox, for that piece about sea turtles and folks helping out those sea turtles. It does take a village to keep things, keep things going. And I wanted to mention, just following up on the theme of our show today, the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, which is one of the stewards in Tomales Bay, they have a Sanctuary Advisory Council, and they have a meeting coming up in Point Reyes. It'll be at the Red Barn Classroom at Point Reyes National Seashore on May 9th, next month. These are public meetings. That means all of you are welcome to attend. There is a 15-minute public comment period, but specifically of interest is that the afternoon agenda will be all about Tomales Bay. The Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary has been working with the stakeholders in the bay here on a mooring program as well as a vessel management plan to help steward the waters as much as possible. So if you want to jump in and get involved and help, this is a great way to start getting informed. Uh, May 9th, a Sanctuary Advisory Council meeting at the Red Barn Classroom at Point Reyes National Seashore. You can get more information about that at Farallons, F-A-R-A-L-L-O-N-E-S dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. You can hear those albatrosses. Who doesn't love that albatross? Well, the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary is going to have an albatross soiree in San Francisco on April 28th, 7 to 9.30 at the San Francisco Zoo. And this soiree is a science and arts celebration. They have science and arts. They'll have a special lecture by Breck Tyler, who is with the Institute of Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz and has spent many years out on these remote islands where these wonderful albatrosses <laughs> live and breed. Well, they live out on the big ocean, but they breed out on those islands. So check that out. April 28th, it is all the way at the San Francisco Zoo. You can go to farallons.org. Farallons.org for details and ways to purchase tickets. The Albatross Soiree, April 28th. Well, I'm out of time here on Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month at 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. You can hear past episodes through the podcast, which is available in iTunes, but also at cordellbank.noaa.gov. That's C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K.noaa.gov. Ten years of shows to catch up on if you'd like. There's also a Twitter feed, and you can follow at OceanKWMR to get information about this program and supporting links about the topics we cover here. And I love hearing from listeners, so feel free to email me, cordellbank at noaa.gov. Tell me what you're interested in hearing more about or questions or comments. So thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the bay, ocean, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on KWMR in West Marin. listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, 
email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.